All right, Luke 8, 26 through 39. Luke 8, 26 to 39. And they arrived at the country of Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And, he, and when he went forth to, to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the, out of the man. For oftentimes he had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. And he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered in, into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out, of the, go out into the deep. And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw it told them, by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of Gadarene round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken, into, taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thy own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way, and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. You may be seated. Well, my sermon this morning is uh, taken from the text that was just read here. Um, you can uh, also... Put your finger at the uh, corresponding passage, which is Mark 5, and um, I want to take a look at this passage and this story here, where Jesus uh, interrupts the um, narrative here that was going on in a country called Gennesaret, or Gadarenes. It's the same name for um, a town, and interestingly enough, uh, this town is... Uh, I think close to the same area where CJ was living in Jordan. And uh, I don't see CJ here this morning. I wanted to confirm that. But I think the uh, modern day town is Kersey or something like that. And uh, I um, don't know very much about the place other than it's uh, um, a place that the Bi shows up in the Bible and shows up in our text here for today. So we have our Bibles open to Luke chapter 8, and there's this uh, fascinating and rather gripping story that comes um, in the incident or in the life of our, our Lord Jesus, his disciples. And there is uh, 
quite a lot of things happening very close together here. If you look at the uh, corresponding passage, as the passages throughout the Gospels, it appears as if it happens very soon after the feeding of the 5,000. They are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and there's this violent storm during which Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And these fishermen who were used to the sea, they were used to the, um, used, used to the uh, dangers that came along with storms and, and seas, and they were completely out of control. This was a very violent storm. And Jesus gets up from his nap and uh, says, says the words, peace be still, or something such. And immediately the storm was, was stilled. The waves ceased, it says, or they stopped their churning, and the storm was over. So they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I am guessing that the trip took them much longer than normal. My guess is that the winds may have blown them off course rather dramatically, but they were um, in the Sea of Galilee, rowing, heading for the other side, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, probably all night. So they get to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the western shore now, close to the town of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, and immediately it says in Mark, which is one of the favorite words that Mark uses. Mark is a, uh, 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 leaves out many details that some of the other Gospels leaves out. He has sort of a hurry-up style, and one of his favorite words is immediately. And it says that immediately when they got to the ship, the shore, there was this ruckus with this demoniac. <clears throat> I couldn't help but wonder about all the significance uh, of that. I'm sure that if you were living along the Sea of Galilee, whether it was on the east or the west shore, the Sea of Galilee is not that large, you would have possibly been woken up during the middle of the night by this incredible storm that was going on and maybe lost some sleep because of the storm. But you're there thinking about how violent the storm is and all at once the storm is over. The wind goes away. Everything's done. Something strange is going on here, right? The demons inside the man, Legion was their name, I think were alerted that there's an interrupter, an interceptor, a redeemer, a savior that's coming across the sea. So the man, his demons were prepared. <clears throat> now throughout the Gospels, I think the stories, the incidents, the sermons, the occasions that are recorded are given for a, very, a variety of reasons, but I think one of the primary reasons, I think, is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He is deity. He is the one who is in charge. He is the Son of God. And the writers, the, the storytellers, uh, use incidents and use illustrations teachings, the things that they record are for the purpose of convincing the reader that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. 
And Luke is especially careful to show that Jesus has power. He has creation power, creative power over the animal world. You can see that um, during the calling of the disciples. Various times he's had, he's had the ability to do miracles that involved fish, for example. He was able to multiply the fish for the feeding of the 5,000. He was able to control the, the schools of fish and direct them into the disciples' nets and so on. He was able to... Um, he had power over the wind and the water at various points in his, uh, in his time here on earth. He did miracles that involved these sorts of things, sort of like the Creator in Genesis chapter 1, who spoke things into existence. He had power over disease. He had power over death. And notably, in our lesson here uh, before us here in Luke 8, he had power over demons. And there are many things about the spiritual world that are, of course, uh, unknown to us. We are limited by time and space in our bodies that we live in. Angels, demons, the spiritual forces are not limited to, like we are to time and space. And so um, they operate in a sphere that is completely unlike or different than ours. They can easily operate in that, in that sphere. The demons are bad angels who, along with Satan, rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. And that is uh, something that we're going to uh, be looking at here this morning. They have the ability to withstand the purposes of God. And they are eager to go counter or opposite to what, to what Jesus' plan and purpose is for our lives and for the um, plan and purpose that Jesus had while he was here on earth. I think it's kind of interesting of note to notice that in the Bible, um, demon possession in the Gospels is unique or distinctive. For instance, you don't read about demon possession in the Old Testament, hardly ever. Maybe the exception would be Genesis chapter 6, where it seems that just prior to the flood there was an increase or a dramatic um, demonic activity going on there. Uh, it doesn't give it in very uh, clear terms, but there does seem to be something demonic going on there if you read the text there in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. Um, you also read about it in the New Testament only a few times during the book of Acts. There was a time where the apostles would cast out demons or they had confrontation with the spirit world. But throughout the life of Jesus, it seems as if they were everywhere. Wherever Jesus went, while the villagers and the people of Jesus' time didn't recognize Jesus, didn't believe in him, didn't accept his message, didn't accept his power, as he went on his way, demons did. They had their theology correct many times. It's interesting to notice that. It's a study of its own. They were able to, to loudly sometimes call out Jesus and call him the Son of God. Call him who the Jews said he was not or couldn't have been. And in this case, we see the exact same time, same thing. Now, interestingly, I, I, um, let me just back up just a little bit, finish my prior thought. In the Bible, 
um, you see a lot of demonic activity again in Revelation, the book of Revelation during the tribulation and the millennium. Uh, Satan and his demons are active, and they are, um, yeah, their destruction and their judgment is talked about at least three times in the book of Revelation. They are um, active just prior to the millennium where his, Satan and his demons are bound for a thousand years. As Jesus is reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he has complete and total authority and control over these spiritual forces. Now, I'm not saying that there were not demons in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that there, by what I'm saying, that there aren't demons around today. That's not the truth. It it doesn't mean that they're not doing today what they desire to do or what Satan's purpose is for them. I believe very clearly it is true, not only here in America, but in other countries as well. I remember especially when Gene and I visited Africa, Kenya, Africa in 2000. It seems for whatever reason in some of these other countries, perhaps they're not as sophisticated or there's not as much medication or I'm not sure exactly what, this, what the reasons are. You see some of these... Um, uh, very unusual um, stories of people and things, animals and such. Um, you see it as much, if not more, as here in the United States. <clears throat> the forces of hell are active. The evil spirits of fallen angels are moving in the world today, and they're practicing their craft. They're doing what they are setting out to do. They're withstanding the purposes of God. In our day, they are there. The thing about demons and evil and the spiritual world in general, especially the fallen angels, I think they prefer most times to be anonymous. I think that's at least my perspective. They prefer to do their work behind the scenes. But in the presence of Jesus, they have no option. They can't remain anonymous. They're not able to do their work behind the scenes. And so when Jesus began his ministry, wherever he went, as he journeyed, people who were possessed with demons cried out. There was immediate and total exposure of the demons that were doing their work in the lives of the people that lived in that time. There are numerous illustrations throughout Jesus' life of this very thing. This story here in Luke 8 and Mark 5, I think, proves that Jesus, number one, invaded the world. He interrupted, he intercepted time, as we say. He interrupted the spiritual world. It was an invasion. God in human flesh. He was God in the sense that he had complete control, total dominion over the spirit world. He had, he had absolute control, absolute authority. But on the same time, it also proves that he was in the human flesh, the seed of the woman, as it was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman was binding the enemy, crushing the head of the serpent, as it was prophesied. And we can see that in this particular story. I want to show you three displays of power in the story here today. There's three displays of power that I see, maybe four. But I want to especially call attention to, to uh, the first three, and then uh, as I close, I'll bring out the, maybe the fourth power, which I don't have listed in this particular screen. The first one, it's pretty easy to read this story and to see the destructive power of demons. 
Satan's purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy, as we've been taught, that little phrase. And Satan's purposes are to destroy, to kill, to bring down, to torment, to make something completely abnormal and unusual. That's exactly what's going on here in this demon-possessed man's life. Secondly, there's the delivering power of Jesus. And I, I think it's important for us to really emphasize this one and this story. And I want to do that as I preach. <clears throat> the third power that I want to touch on here is the power that we, or the possibility of us being blinded by our condition. Um, our our flesh, as long as we're in the flesh, causes us sometimes to be more comfortable with the way things are than the way things ought to be, the way, thing, the way, thing, the way that God wants things to be. And those interruptions sometimes are, give us lots of problems in our life, but we see Jesus' power and um, interrupting that condition of humanity. And that's obvious in this story as well. And uh, I'll touch on that when we get there, get to that point. The fourth power, I think, is we see the demon power, the, de the demon-possessed man being filled with the power of God, and he in turn becomes a missionary. He talks to the people of his, his villagers and the people that, were, that knew his story both prior to his deliverance and after. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, there's an interesting verse where it says, where Jesus says, if, if I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think what I want to point out in this, in this verse, and what I find interesting is that throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, God is described as a very powerful God. In fact, he's so powerful that he has no limits, and it talks about him doing things with his arm, his right arm. It's the arm of strength. It's something that he did, like he rolled up his sleeves, he flexed his muscles, and did what he does. He did it in power. He did it with com completeness. He carried it out. He did it with his strength. But in this particular verse, it carries the idea that he exercised his power at work in the spiritual world, especially demons, is with his finger. Maybe just for interesting, I would say little finger. That's the illustration or the little bit of the picture of the verse that says, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. The power that is available to us through Jesus Christ is so much bigger, so much more able, so much less incapable, so much more capable, so much better able to carry out the work. Let's look, first of all, at the first point, the destructive power of demons. 
And starting in verse 26 and following, we have a description of this, this man, this demoniac. In Mark chapter 5, it's pretty similar. It brings out a few additional details. And they finished their trip across the section of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And they were, um, I think, seeking rest for the huge crowds that had been on the east side, possibly the feeding of 5,000 or other um, teaching moments that Jesus was involved in. There were large crowds that were following Jesus wherever he went. And so they went, started off on a clear night, I believe, and very quickly a storm comes up, and Jesus stilled the storm, and uh, I've already talked about that. So they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and verse 27, were met by this man from the, from the city of the Gerasenes, who was possessed with demons. It mentions, first of all, that he is naked. No clues. He is suicidal. In Mark chapter 5, verse 5, that it mentions that he was constantly cutting himself. He must have been a sight to behold. It mentions in both Mark and Luke that he was constantly shrieking and screaming. Um, I barely can imagine how this may have been. If you would have been a townsperson, a villager, let's imagine, just to make this current, let's imagine that you would have been an owner of an Airbnb close to the cemetery where he lived. You would have had reviews that would have said, there's this strange noise coming from the cemetery. The townspeople heard this shrieking and screaming constantly, night and day. This man had the power to become very loud in his, in his with, he had a strong voice. Aside from that, the Bible account mentions that he is incredibly strong. People that cared about him, people that loved him, tried to subdue him. They tried to guard him. They tried to keep him from doing harm to himself. So they would chain him. They would fetter him. They would shackle him, but he would break the chains. That's incredible strength. Freakish strength. Besides that, he was living in the tombs. He is not living in a house like people do and did. He is living in the cemetery. Obviously, a person like this wouldn't be able to live in a house. I can't hardly see how. Today, when people are in this situation, when people, especially here in the United States, they are locked up. They're in prison, perhaps. I've heard some of Sam Stolzfus's stories, and I think they would maybe even possibly kind of line up with some of this, this story. But they're in isolation. They're in padded cells. Yeah. In those days, there probably was no medication. They couldn't control them with that. They didn't have mental institutions to put them in. So what did they do? Well, it tells us. The only thing they could do was guard him. The only thing they could do is try to minimize the damage that he could do to himself. This is a man who is a maniac. He is completely out of control. He frightens everybody and everything. He is removed from society. 
There are no drugs to give him. There is no prison to put him in. There is no institution to consign him to. No matter what they did, he broke the chains. He wrecked the situations around him. It seems as if he basically never slept. He was constantly crying and screaming. But here in verse 28, when he comes in contact with Jesus, you see the desperation and the panic that sets in. I think it's mostly the panic of the demons. This man is completely under the control, the forces of evil. The demons talk to Jesus. First of all, it seems as if the conversation is primarily between the man and Jesus. But it becomes clear when you look at the pronouns, the pronouns change from singular to plural. So it is the demons, plural, that are talking to Jesus. And Jesus confronts them and casts out the demons from the man. Now it is very interesting, especially to notice, in verse 28 and following, when Jesus came onto the sea, onto the shore there, this demoniac, controlled by the demons, came out, and in a very loud voice, it says, probably heard by the townspeople and the people that were close by, he said, What have I to do with thee, thou son, thou Jesus, son of the Most High God? And I'm putting that in my own words. I, uh, could, you can look at the uh, passage here, the text exactly. He says, I implore you by God, he says, don't torment me. Now, that is very ironic. This was a man who was unbelievably tormented. We'll talk about that maybe just a little bit more later on. And it's interesting to also notice how that he calls him Jesus, the son of the most high God. Now, in the story just preceding this, which is the story of the disciples and Jesus crossing the, the, the sea. There was this incredible storm. They were scared for their lives. They wake up Jesus, and Jesus stills the storm. And the disciples said, who is this? The demons recognized him as the Son of God. The disciples weren't sure. Now, the part that especially makes this interesting Sunday school material and the part that we especially remember about this is that the demons, in their conversation with Jesus, ask not to be consigned to hell, the abyss, before the time, which is interesting. That's uh, sort of a study of its own. Um, these demons had a view of eschatology that um, um, they, they believed that the Bible meant what it's... They, they understood that there was going to be a judgment where they were going to be cast into the abyss. Before the time, they asked not to be consigned to that place before the time. But they asked interimly to be allowed to go into the pigs. And this was Gentile country, so not Jewish. The Jewish people would not have had pigs that they herded. But there was several thousand pigs, at least 2,000 of them, um, around there, probably watched by herdmen. 
And they asked permission of Jesus to go in there and the pigs, and Jesus gave them the permission to do that. It says that the pigs ran down the, country, down the hillside, jumped over a cliff into the sea, and were drowned. And while that's fascinating to us, the Bible doesn't really give us much more detail other than that about the demons. Um, I have heard this story many times preached and taught in ways that the villagers, who probably were the owners of the pigs, I don't know for sure, but they were concerned about their material loss. Maybe they were. The text doesn't say that. The text does not say that they were concerned about their material loss although maybe they were. But they were fascinated at the power and the change that had come to this demoniac, the man who was possessed with demons. They, these demons did not want to be cast into the abyss or into hell, the bottomless pit, as it's called, in Revelation three times in chapter 9 of Revelation and chapter 11 and, verse, and chapter 17 of Revelation. Also in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude 6 and 7, it, makes, mentions, it mentions the bottomless pit where Satan and his demons, some of them are all, were already there ever since Genesis chapter 6. In that time, uh, there were demons that were consigned to, to the bottomless pit by Jesus, by his power, by God. These demons couldn't restrain themselves in the power, the presence of Jesus. And I forgot that I had these verses here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude, especially verse 6. Let's talk about the delivering power of Jesus. And this is, this is so incredible. While it's incredible and fascinating, it jogs our, our minds, sort of boggles us how Jesus had power over demonics. And the spiritual forces of that time, it is even more boggling to think about Jesus' power, the delivering power, the salvation power. And many of us have had experiences and testimonies in our lives. Some of you perhaps uh, more graphic than others. But if we're, if we're a believer, if we're saved, we have experienced this delivering power. Sometimes delivered from or delivered out of. Some of us, I think our story has been maybe a little bit more where we've been kept from that. Either one. It's a huge, huge power of Christ. A, a power that's outside of ourselves. Now, in, able to, in, order to able, in order to understand this maybe just a little better, we have to do a little bit of a study of angels or angelology, whatever you want to call it. Angels are in almost every way superior to us. As, as people, uh, we're the, our part or our section of the creation, angels are created beings. I think they were created around the time of creation. And uh, they possess superior intelligence, clearly. They understand and know things that we don't know anything about. They're not like human beings. They are not confined to limits in relation to time and space like we are. They have much greater uh, scope or uh, ability to, to function. Um, 
throughout the Bible, if you look at angels and demons, they're able to travel maybe quickly. I don't think they are omnipresent, but they have ability to, to travel fast. Uh, they're superior to us in that way. They are much stronger than people. For instance, in 2 Kings chapter 19, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. In Daniel chapter 9, they have influence and responsibility over areas or territories, it seems to indicate. They are powerful and influential. Even fallen angels, I'm saying, have this ability. They, there seems throughout the Bible to be a conflict between fallen angels and heavenly angels. Um, something that I don't feel like I understand or can imagine just really thoroughly. But novelists and writers have tried to capture some of this. And perhaps they are accurate in their picture. I'm not guaranteeing it. Once created, angels appear to be eternal. They never die. They are always alive. They never grow old like human beings. They never die. They have a, they're not, uh, like I said, com- confined by space and time like, like we are. They are able to move. They are able to travel. They are vast. They are a powerful group. And the fallen angels, which we call demons, I think have most of the same capabilities, only they are not subject to, say, or to God's commands. They are in opposition, rather. Now, when I talk about all of that, it gives us a little bit of picture about the great need that this man had. He needed a Savior. He needed deliverance. He must have been in I mean, his situation is just as awful as I can possibly describe it. It's probably worse. But he comes in contact with Jesus, and Jesus delivers him. That is so amazing, so powerful. With his finger, metaphorically, Jesus controls the demons, the legion, thousands of demons that were tormenting this man. Can you imagine the torment, the torment that his soul was in? I don't know for sure about this herd of pigs and why Jesus chose to illustrate the deliverance of the oppression that this man had. But it does sort of give a little bit of a visual, doesn't it? Think about the power and the adrenaline and the unbelievable force to have 2,000 pigs. I've never seen that many in, well, I I don't know that I've ever seen that many in one spot. But to have them run in a, in a similar, the same direction, to dive over a cliff, that, that's an unbelievable amount of energy and adrenaline. All of this was confined into one person. Let's just say he was about my size. And the fact that the demons destroyed or killed the pigs... I think gives illustration of what the intent of the demon possession was on the man. 
They were intent on killing him, destroying him. Jesus, on the other hand, his focus was on salvation. His, his focus was on restoration. His focus was on peace, on calmness. In verse 35 of Luke chapter 8, it says, And they went out. This is talking about the villagers. They went out and they saw what was done. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up. It was the, the, the herd men, the people that were watching the pigs. They saw what was done. They saw the pigs. They saw Jesus coming in. They saw the, the exchange. They witnessed it. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man of, out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it mentions first thing, he was clothed. And he was in his right mind. And their response was fear. I'm guessing they were probably also scared of the man when he was in his demonic state. And maybe it's maybe a, a more general statement of saying that they were afraid of the sheer power that they knew existed or that the transformation that took place. I would have a hard time. I'm having a hard time describing what happened. If I would have witnessed it, if it would have been a person that I would have personally known, I, I, I would guess that there would probably be a certain amount of whoa that would, any one of us would feel. Hard to believe. They were scared. <clears throat> and leads us to the third power, and that is the blind power of our condition. And I've already alluded to this, but I want to give it as uh, we come to the end of our sermon here. The blinding power of our condition. Sin blinds us. Our condition blinds us. Our flesh causes us not to see the whole picture. The demons exert the power. Jesus interrupts that power. He brings delivering power with that. And it, it creates something fascinating or interesting in, in our lives. And I've already alluded to some of these. Instead of saying thank you for the deliverance from this constant screaming, for the constant headache that this demoniac was, they asked Jesus to leave. Almost seems that they would have been more comfortable with a demoniac. They were more comfortable with things as they were than to have Jesus interrupt and bring change. They would rather have a maniac than the Son of God. They would rather have the presence of Satan than the presence of Christ. That's the blindness and the darkness that exists in our lives, even today. We resist interruptions by Christ sometimes. Maybe not so much because we don't desire betterment, but we can't grasp or fathom the extent of the change that God actually wants to bring in our lives. Think about the man, and I've referred to this earlier. His plea to Jesus was to not have, not to be tormented by Jesus. But he was already unbelievably tormented by Satan. 
When Jesus confronts that torment, he is delivered. He is clothed and in his right mind. But his plea was, don't torment me. The villagers who were constantly, had this headache of the demoniac in the mountains. I don't know how they went about burials. I don't know how they went about guarding this man. I don't know how they captured him. I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us those details. But when they see the man clothed, when he is obviously not oppressed anymore, they say, leave us, Jesus. And it, it's, the words are clear. It's, they were taken with great fear, it says in verse 37. The herdmen were afraid, verse 35. They begged him to leave. And that word begged actually means that. It means, actually, it's almost stronger than our English words begged. It's not like, take the first taxi out of town. It's leave right now. That's the, that's the, that's the connotation. Peter had that similar reaction when he was fishing from the boat and all of a sudden he realized that the man on the shore was Jesus who already had fish in a fire. He'd been fishing all night wanting to get back into that occupation, hadn't caught a single fish. And when he realizes that it's Jesus, he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. The intimidation of holiness is something that is just fascinating as I see it in this story. We'd rather have the fear of the storms and waves than to deal with the miracle of calm. We'd rather have the torment that we're in. We'd rather have that as our identity than to face a new identity that involves peace and calmness. We'd rather have the maniac screaming than to deal with the quiet change. Now this story ends with a true and wonderful completion. The maniac becomes a missionary. And this is very fascinating. Again, the Bible doesn't hardly give me enough of details to satisfy my curiosity, but in verse 38, the man from whom the demons was, who had the demons cast out is begging Jesus that same word. Begging him in the Greek word is a strong pleading. He wants to stay with Jesus. I don't blame him. But Jesus tells him to stay where he's at and to tell what great things have happened in his life. He has a clean conscience. He has new longings in his heart. He's clothed. He's rational. He's free. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be by his side physically. He wants to become a disciple, a learner. He wants to follow Jesus. But instead, Jesus enables him, and he basically says, No, you can't go with me. Stay where you are and share your testimony. As close as I can tell, the next time that Jesus comes into this town, it says the whole village came out to him to greet him. They were eager to see him. This man had a very successful ministry. Also, it's especially interesting to me to note, in verse 39, he says, return to your house. I wonder how long it's been since the maniac was home. 
but he went home to his house. Actually, that's sort of similar to some of the other incidents that Jesus did in healings. He told the people to go home. That's what happened in the mind and heart of the prodigal son. He went home. That's the story of, of salvation. It's the story of restored relationships. It's the story of peace and calmness that comes as a result of the power of God in our lives. So everywhere he went, he proclaimed throughout the whole city. Let me just read verse 39. Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Everywhere he went, he became a walking testimony of Jesus' power. Everyone was amazed. Mark 5, verse 20. Everyone was amazed. See what Jesus does? He turns maniacs into missionaries. He turns people who need relief into people who are calm and peaceful. <clears throat> That's one of the reasons that Jesus came into the world, is to bring interruption to the cycle and pattern of sin in our lives. He frees us to save us from sin, to save us from Satan. He came to eliminate our guilt and our torment, to eliminate our enemy, ultimately, Satan. The Bible makes this very clear, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after the fall, God prophesies that there's coming a time where Satan will be bound. The head of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, the descendants of Adam and Eve. And while for the time, Satan has freedoms. Even the freedoms that he has are under the parameters of God's design. But there will come a time where Satan will be crushed. There's a prophetic ring that we see here in this story. There's coming a time where Satan will be bound. He is going to be cast out and will be free from the, not only from the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. I'm looking forward to that time. And my prayer is that in the meantime, I would be faithful and serving him and sharing the message like the maniac, being the missionary, telling what God thinks what great things God has done in, in my life. And that is my prayer for all of us. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel with me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning in amazement and thanksgiving for your great purpose and plan. We thank you for your ability to redeem us, to restore us, to break the power of sin and the power of the enemy in our lives. I pray that will be true in each of our lives, that the power, Satan's power, would be interrupted and intercepted. I pray that you would deliver us from evil, as the uh, words of our Lord uh, pray, that we would be kept from sin, that we would be delivered from sin. And I pray that would be the, the story and the testimony of all of our lives. Here in this in our situation and in the world in which we live, that the cycle of sin would be broken. The pattern of our torment would be interrupted. I pray, Lord, for your uh, word to be strong and multiplied here this morning. And where there's things said that are not accurate, I pray that they would not stand out as important. But where there is truth and where there is power that was spoken, I pray that it would sink into the hearts and minds of all of us. That it would 
dominate our thoughts and minds in the coming week, that we would live in a way that is right and in the operation of your power at work in our lives. Again, we thank you and we pray this through Christ. Amen.